morning. So good to see all of you here in the house of the Lord, even as we worship Him together as one people. Uh, let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, speak your words of life to us. We pray, Father, by your Spirit that you plant the seeds of the kingdom in our hearts and that our hearts will be fertile soil to produce the harvest of righteousness. Father, we look to you and we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Andrew Roberts is a well-respected British historian and he has uh, written biographies of famous people like uh, Winston Churchill. He was the British Prime Minister during World War II. He has also written books about uh, Napoleon the Great, the great military leader and the Emperor of France during the uh, uh, 19th century, early 19th century. And uh, Andrew Roberts was at a, um, a discussion forum recently and he was asked the question to the effect, uh, who was the most pivotal uh, world historic figure, uh, somebody from history that uh, is world changing? Please. Thank you. He was asking, in fact, who was the most pivotal historical figure? In other words, who was the person who had the most impact in shaping world history and shaping the world today? And uh, Andrew uh, Roberts replied in the fact that uh, it wasn't figures, I mean, to his point, it wasn't figures like Jesus who changed world history. He said that the, the people that had the most impact were evil people like uh, Adolf Hitler and, and Joseph Stalin who caused the death of so many in their lifetimes. Now, to be clear, Andrew Roberts is not respecting them. He doesn't admire them. His point is that uh, human history is tragic because it is the evil caused by men like that uh, that shapes pretty much our world today. That's his viewpoint. And the problem is that evil seems to have such an immediate huge impact, isn't it? A gunman uh, running rampage in a school, for example, a husband abusing his wife, a child being forsaken. There's always such a great impact when evil is done. And then you have famines, you have pandemics, you have wars and rumours of wars. And the good that we sometimes can do seems to be always small and insignificant to the task at hand. Caring for somebody with dementia, uh, trying to counsel somebody in uh, having drug addict uh, uh, um, habits or in bondage of gambling, etc. The thing that we can do seems to be very small to the task at hand. We feel that the, what we can do is too little, too late. And so the, very often the earthly perspective is that evil is dominant and so we have to make do with what we can do. And sometimes we try to take matters in our own hands. We try to fight fire with fire. We try to use human wisdom and human action to gain the advantage. But the, hum the heavenly perspective, the perspective of faith, is that God is still working and His kingdom is still growing despite the odds. It is the perspective of faith that we believe that God's kingdom is the stronger than the brokenness that we see around us. The brokenness and sin that we see around us is reality. But the kingdom of God is the stronger, the greater reality. We believe that because of Jesus, the destinies of nations have changed. That because of His grace, people of every 
people group, of every culture, of every background can be saved and healed in His grace. But we need the eyes of faith to see and believe this because God is acting in ways we don't expect. And we read in the scripture that Jesus taught in parables because God is working in unexpected ways. The way that God is working is not as the people expected. There was and there is still great rejection about what Jesus taught, about his teaching, about God's kingdom. Just to give you an example, in Luke chapter 4, at the start of his ministry, Jesus preached in his hometown, his hometown of Nazareth, and he preached from the text from the prophet Isaiah, using uh, Isaiah chapter 61, and he preached about how God is now acting in his son Jesus to work powerfully again in the lives of his people, to bring salvation to the nations. Now, Jesus on that occasion did not teach in parables. He taught them directly from scripture, and he said plainly from, from scriptural history that God's saving work is not confined only to Israel, that God's saving work is going out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the, the social outcasts, those that are undeserving, to those that do not deserve God's mercy and salvation. And for that, his hometown neighbours tried to kill him. When Jesus taught them clearly, the people rose up and tried to kill him because they could not take the truth of how God is working beyond their expectations. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, also rejected the message of Jesus and tried to have him killed. They were offended at how Jesus taught and showed how God was working in their midst. Jesus was healing on the Sabbath against their religious regulations. Uh, he was eating with social outcasts and parias of the society. Uh, in, in those days, if you ate at the same table with someone, it means that you know, it's most intimate. It's, it's, based, it's like family. It's like your clan member. Right? You, don't, you don't simply eat with anyone. And he was eating with social outcasts, parias. He was befriending sinners. He was um, showing love and mercy that, to those who the religious leaders think that do not deserve God's mercy and goodness. And worse
Jesus. Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit on every disciple, we stand today in greater privilege and revelation than the Old Testament saints. And so uh, we will see later the great value, the great importance that we must put uh, to uh, uh, what Jesus teaches us as disciples. And so the big idea for today is that God's kingdom grows in unexpected ways. There's uh, three areas uh, for our reflection. Planting small seeds, persevering through opposition, and passion for God's kingdom. So first, planting small seeds. Small beginnings, but unstoppable impact. Many times, we find that the task that God calls us to do is impossible from a human perspective. We know that human reasoning, human wisdom alone would not achieve what God asks us to do. And many times, it requires a step of faith. 
in the um, in the 18th century, it uh, passed into the oh sorry the late 17th century, something plus 18th century into the 19th century. Sorry, um, Wilbur, William Wilberforce. Many of you uh, know this name. He was a British MP, and um, as a young man, he was as a younger man he was converted into into Christianity, and um, because of the conviction of his Christian faith, he worked with other Christians uh, to try to abolish slavery. Slavery was a uh, deeply entrenched and established institution at that time, basically. And um, uh, you can see this map, it's called the triangular trade. And what happened was, uh, Britain on the, tap, uh, the top right, Britain produced goods like textile, rum, and they, they kind of exported this British goods, and uh, the British ships would bring those exports down to Africa, where they would use these goods to exchange it for slaves. They, they used the goods to, to buy slaves from the slave traders who operated in Africa, and basically they, hand, they hunted down uh, men, women, and children like animals, right? Captured them for slaves, uh, as slaves, and then they, they were traded for the goods, and they were loaded up into ships under very horrible conditions, and then the ships would take them across the ocean uh, they're about to West Indies and also to America to offload the slaves to be part of the slave economy. At that time, uh, the colonies, including those in America, they used slave labor to produce things like cotton um, and other types of uh, commodities produced by slave labor. So they took on these commodities and then shipped them back to Britain to uh, obviously begin the cycle again. So it was a Deeply entrenched, uh, deeply entrenched economy, slave economy, that enriched the European colonial powers. And so, when uh, Wilberforce and other Christians in Britain started to campaign against this type of inhumane trade, they were literally working against national interests because the slave trade contributed up to 80% of Britain's foreign income at that time. And so to kind of campaign against that is actually acting against national interests and also the powerful vested interests in those who have become rich and powerful because of this slave trade. And it must have seemed an impossible task, but they did it anyway. And over the course of 20 years, it started about uh, maybe 1780s or so, and he spent over the next 20 years Campaigning, he was a member of parliament, so he had parliamentary campaigns to try to um, introduce laws to try to limit or to overturn this uh, slave trade. Uh, and it you know, took over 20 years, basically, of many discouraging setbacks and failures until in 1807, the British Parliament uh, came up with the Slave Trade Act, 1807, that outlawed the, the slave trade. It did not outlaw the the practice of slavery, but it outlawed the trade in slavery. That means it stopped the British ships uh, from carrying slaves on their ships. And the, at that, up to that point, um, the majority of the slaves were carried on British ships because they were the dominant navy. Um, but 1807, they outlawed that practice. And he further worked on for another 26 years um, to to campaign against the abolishment of slavery itself. That means against the practice of slavery itself. And it took another 26 years uh, under failing health conditions until finally, um, in 1833, 
um, he was failing in his health, he gave a last speech in Parliament in the April of 1833, felt very ill, but uh, in his last days, he got news that the government had made the necessary concessions to pass the bill. And this was in 18, uh, 1833, uh, it's called like the, uh, I think it was the Slave Abolishment Act. And um, that actually outlawed the practice of slavery itself. And um, he got the news that it was going to pass. It didn't pass then, he got the news and then he died. He passed away three days later. So all in all, he spent about nearly 50 years of his life uh, campaigning against slavery. So what started as a small seed, a small movement, uh, flourished into a huge campaign, a huge national campaign uh, to outlaw the practice of slavery. And so a lot of times, what God asks us to do seems to be impossible. There will be powerful vested interests working against uh, what God asks us to do, and very often it seems uh, so small, but it will grow. And the, the, our office should prompt us to consider how we might represent God's values, how we might represent God's kingdom. Now, Jesus and his disciples lived in the time when Israel, the land of Israel, was under the Roman Empire. All right, you got foreign soldiers and tax collectors. Uh, these were a constant reminder to the people of Israel that they did not have national independence. The religious elite, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the priests, they dominated the spiritual life of the people with strict religious code and the temple uh, sacrificial systems, etc. And there was an uneasy balance between um, the Roman authorities and the religious leaders of Israel. They came to some sort of an um, understanding that Rome, the Roman authorities will leave the religious life to the religious leaders as long as taxes were paid and there were no riots or rebellion. So that was the power structure. And into this mix, Jesus preached the kingdom of God. He preached that an authority far bigger than a Roman authority, the Roman Empire, was present now in the people, in the midst of the people. And it might seem as an impossible thing. Can this, from a human perspective, can this carpenter from this town of Nazareth with a core group of 12 disciples, some of them fishermen, some of them misfits from society, could they actually start something that would overturn the Roman world? Could this group actually challenge the established spiritual authority of the religious elite? And Jesus explains it this way in Matthew chapter 13, 31 to 33, the kingdom of God, uh, or the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, Yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds come and perch in its branches. The seed of what God calls us to do may seem small and insignificant to the task at hand and to the untrained eye, it's just a seed. But to the eye of the farmer or the gardener, there is a tree in that seed. When the farmer sows the seed, the farmer does not see the smallness or the limitation of the seed. The farmer sees the potential of the tree or the grain for the harvest. We see a seed, 
the farmer sees a tree. The farmer is never discouraged by the smallest of the seed because the farmer's sight, his vision, is on the tree, the fruits that it will produce and the life it will support. And so when God calls you to plant a seed for the kingdom, your sight is not on the smallest of the seed, your vision is on the kingdom life that the seed will produce when it grows into a tree. Also, planting a seed is an act of faith and humility because you can't control the growth, the actual growth of the seed. You could um, prepare the soil, you could you know, make sure that you nurture the seed, but really the actual growth potential is in the seed itself. It needs patient endurance because the growth can't be rushed if the tree is going to be healthy. And when that seed germinates, when you have that first shoots that come out from the seed, it is still a tender, fragile start against a harsh world. Many things can cause the plant to die and the crop to fail. But when that plant grows up into a tree, there is an abundance of life that comes from the fruits and the other seeds of that tree. There is life that the seed or that tree growing up from the seed supports from its branches and the shade that it brings. That is the way the kingdom starts and grows. When God calls us to plant the seed for the kingdom, the work may seem small and insignificant, certainly against the backdrop of human failures, human weakness and struggles. It may seem hardly worth the effort. But if we see with the eyes of faith that it is God who will cause the growth and to bring the impact, then we are to see a flourishing tree in every seed we sow for the kingdom. Second, persevering through opposition. Every good work is tested. Jesus told another parable that describes the reality of the world we live in. He told the parable of the weeds. In this parable, Jesus describes how a man planted good seeds for the harvest of wheat, but secretly his enemy came and planted bad seeds that produced weeds. Now, in this particular parable, the man who planted good seed is Jesus himself, and the enemy is the devil. The result is, as the children of righteousness are raised in the kingdom, there will be people under the bondage of sin and evil who will grow as well. The people of the kingdom will contend on the same space with the people of the evil one. As righteousness grows, the works of evil, sin, and wickedness will grow in contention with the people of the kingdom. And this is another aspect of kingdom growth that we need to understand, so that we need to understand and expect, actually, uh, so that we do not become discouraged when we do see the works of the evil one. And in that parable, the, the, the servants of the landowner ask him, shall we go and you know, pull out the, the weeds? And the master replied, no, because as the weeds are being uprooted, the wheat may be damaged as well. We often wish that God will intervene and destroy evil all at once. 
But the truth is, the roots of evil are closely intertwined with the roots of the people of the kingdom. It is God's mercy to hold back His final judgment on evil. If God were to end the present evil age completely, then that may be those who have yet to come into God's kingdom on the day of judgment. Uh, there are families and loved ones not yet saved. In fact, every wicked people, every wicked person have family and loved ones as well. And in God's mercy, He withholds His hand of judgment for the moment until the full number of the people come into God's kingdom. But God will decisively end evil. Jesus will return with power and glory to bring the wicked to account and the unrepentant to judgment. But until that day of judgment, the people of the kingdom will live in the presence of enemies and the children of the evil one who will oppose the work of the kingdom. Earlier on in uh, William Wilberforce's uh, career, when he campaigned against slavery, the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, actually wrote him a letter in 1791 about the opposition that Wilberforce should expect to face. Now, at this point, John Wesley was near the end of his earthly life. In fact, this was the, the final letter that John Wesley wrote to Wilberforce, and this is an excerpt of it. And he writes, Unless God raise you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary or well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His mind. Every good work is tested. Every seed of the kingdom is opposed by the seed of the devil. But we do not lose heart even though there is much opposition, discouragements, and setbacks. That is the reality of the world we face. But we must always remember that the power and the reality of God's kingdom is far greater than the works of the evil one. The devil is a dangerous and vicious enemy. And the Bible wants us to be aware of the schemes of the devil, to cause sin and stumbling, to cause deception and disunity. But we must never be intimidated by the works of the devil. The devil is not all-powerful. The devil is not all-knowing. The devil and his demons are not present everywhere all at once. But we serve an all-powerful God, an all-knowing and an all-loving God who is present everywhere and all at once. And the devil knows that his days are numbered, That's, that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. And Satan knows this. And so Satan is a dangerous enemy who must not be underestimated, but he is a defeated enemy whose time is short. And so we must not be intimidated, discouraged, or distracted by the works of the devil, of the evil one. As Pastor Bill Johnston puts it, and I paraphrase here, we live in trusting response to the Father. 
not in fearful reaction to the devil. Third, passion for God's kingdom. Giving, giving up everything for the one thing. Uh, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, Microsoft is the, the world's leading office software um, provider. He's, they are also a cloud computing service provider, one of the uh, strongest software companies in the world. Uh, that founder, Bill Gates, had a friendship with Warren Buffett, one of the world's most successful investors. Not long after they got to know one another, uh, Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett had, uh, um, I think, dinner together or something like that. They were gathering with the family. And Bill Gates' father asked them to write down a piece of paper what was the most important thing that helped them right, in their careers or whatever uh, not. And without discussing with one another, they wrote the same thing. Right? Both of them wrote the same thing, and that is focus. That is the ability to give your full energy and attention on what's needed in their work. Jonathan Ive was, uh, is also a, uh, he's a acclaimed product designer, right, from Apple. He used to be from Apple, and he was involved with the product design of products like iPod and I, iPhone, iPad, the, the, you know, MacBook, etc. And Jonathan Ive will say that one of the most important lessons, similarly to what we've learned from Bill Gates, one of the most important lessons that I learned from the Apple founder Steve Jobs was the need to focus and prioritize. And uh, uh, Steve Jobs would often challenge uh, Jonathan what he was prepared to give up to focus on a particular work. And Steve Jobs would ask him, how many things have you said no to? And uh, Jonathan would say, oh yeah, you know, I've given up this, this, that, and the other. But the truth was, he knew that he was giving up things that he didn't really care about. And, and Steve Jobs would push him to understand that focus requires giving up the good things. It is saying no to important things because you're focused on something else. So the lesson actually here is that our focus and performance actually decreases when we multitask, right? And so when our energy and, and our attention is spread across many things, right, the performance tends to go down. So this might be good advice for studies, for career, for work, but long before Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, Jesus had already taught his disciples to give their lives fully to the overriding priority of God's kingdom. And we have already seen this in Matthew chapter 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our focus and priority as disciples must be very clear. clear. Uh, you could have successful companies, and investment careers. But if you don't have Jesus, you have lost it all. If you are not in his kingdom, you have lost everything. The greatest career and financial success are only temporary. They cannot and they will not last. But if we put our focus and lives on what is, if we put our lives on things that will not last, then we are lost we will lose sight of God's kingdom. Only God's kingdom is eternal and of eternal worth. And we must not let anything hinder us from entering and living in God's kingdom. Jesus brings this point clearly in the parables of the hidden pearl and buried treasure 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, starting from verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out, sold everything he had, and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything that he had, and he bought it. So this is the truth. If our focus and passion are on God's kingdom, then every aspect of our lives will come under the authority and care of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our families, our jobs, our careers, our future. God knows what we need. And God will supply our needs as we seek first His kingdom and righteousness. Now, having... Um, you know, I was, I was trying to teach my seven-year-old son, Caleb, I was trying to tell him, oh, you, you must put God first uh, in your life. And obviously, he gave me a, a quick comeback. Oh, that means I don't need to study, I don't need to do homework, right? You know, that kind of... Uh, that, that. I didn't expect that kind of comeback until his teenage years, but, you know, he's seven years old, he's giving me this. Um, so, having our focus on God's kingdom does not mean we don't have to study hard or, or work hard to earn a living. We need to be responsible, right? Um... But what motivates us, our intentions, our goals, are very different from the rest of the world. We don't look for career success. We look to represent Christ well in the workplace, trusting that God's favor will position us at a point where we are able to make good impact. So our focus is not on career progression or career promotion itself. The focus and driving passion for a child of God is to see God's purposes accomplished as He works through you. So the way that you invest time to mentor a, a younger worker at work, for example, the way you speak about others in your organization and your, your, the, the, the community that you're in, the way you treat others must reflect your passion and your love for God. Our lives, whether in family, community, and work, must reflect the kingdom values of love, of forgiveness, compassion. Freely, as you receive from the Lord, freely you give to others. But we must allow the force of the words of Jesus to hit home. Those who find God's kingdom must give up everything else to enter into God's kingdom and to live for God's kingdom. Something along the lines of what Steve Jobs pushed Jonathan Ive, right? What have you said no to? It's not convenient things that we, 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 you know, we freely give up. It's the good things that we have to say no to. The good and important things that we give up for the sake of God's kingdom. And we must give up everything else to enter and live into God's kingdom. We must not allow anything to prevent us from entering into God's kingdom because God's kingdom is of unimaginable worth. It is abundant life and righteousness under God's authority and care for us. So the decisions we make and the actions we take must demonstrate our passion for God's heart and the priority of God's kingdom. Of course, this is not something that we can do on our own strength. This is God's Spirit working in us. 
to take every step of decision and every action for God's kingdom. Now, just to take one aspect, the law aspects, just to take one, our devotion time with God, let's just say. We must treasure this time with the Lord. If we go through the day, any other day, and we say, oh, I'll, I'll try to make time for God, it's not going to happen, right? It won't happen. We have to intentionally block off time for God to worship Him, to pray, to read God's Word. This is your sacred time with God. And I appreciate some of my brothers in the uh, small group, they tell me when they um, drive to work, you know, get caught up in a jam, etc. They're always listening right, to uh, a sermon, listening to God's Word. That's the thing that we have to do. We have to redeem the time that we have and use every opportunity uh, to, to hear God's Word. And when they get to the office, they'll spend some time, quiet time praying before God. That is exactly what we should do. Um, and not just, you know, leave it to chance that you maybe have some time to hear God's word in the day. And um, if you can spend, if you can only afford 10 minutes, then you start with that. Don't wait until you think you can have 45 minutes. If you've got 10 minutes, you, you redeem that time, spend it with the Lord. Treasure that time with the Lord rather on, you know, social media or Netflix or hearing the news. Um, I'm not saying that you can't do social media or hear the news, but you need to guard what you're feeding the soul. The, thing, the spiritual principle to keep in mind is this. You can only give what you receive from the Lord. You must first receive from the Lord before you can give. If we don't renew ourselves every day with the Lord, if we haven't received His word of grace, His word of forgiveness, His word of comfort, his word of wisdom, his word of healing, how are we able to then minister to our children, to our family, to the workplace? If we carry in us bitterness and unforgiveness, it will definitely come out in the way we treat our children, that's for sure. It will definitely come out the way we react to work situations. It is from the wellspring of the heart that comes out our words and our actions. One last word on another parable of, of Jesus, and we'll end with this one, Luke chapter 21. Jesus told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. We may see things that are happening and things that are coming that may trouble us or make us fearful. And earlier in that passage in Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be frightened about what you're going to see. And here the Lord says, when you see that parable of the fig tree happening, the kingdom of God is near. Why? When bad things happen, when frightening things threaten, God will be even more powerfully at work to bring redemption, healing, and hope. The more the evil one works, the greater God's kingdom will grow so that when Jesus one day returns in power and glory, God's healing redemption will overcome the brokenness of sin.
So I want to end by uh, praying for all of us here. And I ask you to just come into the Lord's presence and receive from Him His Word. And His Word today might be for some of us that it's time to give back everything, to give up everything that's holding you back from coming fully into His kingdom. You see, for God, it's not half measures. It's not you give up some things and then you compromise with God, you come into His kingdom. It's giving up everything and coming into His kingdom. And for us, some of us today, maybe the word of the Lord is that you need to give up that thing that is holding you back. I'd like to pray for you. But it's also, for many of us, the need to plant the seeds of the kingdom, no matter how small or insignificant you think that seed is, because it is going to flourish uh, by the word and grace of the Lord. And so, Father, even as we come into your presence, we open our hearts to you. Only you know what is holding us back. Only you know the thing that hinders us from surrendering everything to you, from coming fully into your kingdom. Some of us are holding because of our past. Some of us are holding back because of something in the present. And some, some of us are holding back because of something that we are hoping for for the future. By your grace and spirit, Lord, help us to trust in you that you are a good God. That we can trust you to surrender all things to you, to give up all things for you, to surrender every aspect of our lives to you. And Father, by your grace and spirit, we say, Lord, take my life. I lay aside everything, anything that hinders me from coming fully into your kingdom. Father, we pray for those of us that are involved with the work of the kingdom that we know the pain and suffering, the brokenness that we see in our own families, in ourselves, in the workplace, in the schools that we are in, communities that we serve. And many times, we feel like giving up. Many times, we refuse to start because we know the task ahead is long and difficult. Would you, Lord, give us the eyes of faith to see the tree of the kingdom in every seed that you ask us to plant. And Father, we commit our lives, our families, our communities before you. And Father, we say to you, Lord, I plant in faith what you have entrusted to me. And so, Lord, we pray that every seed that is planted in faith for your glory, Father, would you not send forth your spirit and cause abundant life and righteousness to flourish. And this we surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.